2: We've got a special code for podcast listeners that gets you a 20% discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is pod20. Go to newscientist.com pod20 to subscribe and you get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories to listen to in our app. That's newscientist.com pod20 to get your 20% discount.
3: And also, just to tell you, there's this year's first Big Thinkers event. That's taking place online next Thursday, the 10th of February. It's called Reality Plus – From the Matrix to the Metaverse. It's the 10th of February. It's live online at 6 to 7pm GMT. So, take the red pill. Go to newscientist.com slash virtual reality. Hello Science Gang, this is New Scientist Weekly. It's your essential fix of science for the week. I'm your host, Roan Hooper.
2: And I'm your other host, Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show. This week we're also joined by New Scientist reporters Michael LePage and Leah Crane. Hello both. Hello. Hi.
3: Coming up on the show this week, we're hearing from Professor Chris Jackson on why geology is important in the climate fight – we've got a roundup of climate news of the week and we're hearing the latest in the new era of gravitational wave astronomy.
2: Ooh, yes and yeah. we're also going to be talking about a fascinating study on fruit flies.
3: Yeah that's a great study about Drosophila the fruit fly about the differences in how they learn that can't be explained either by nature or nurture so uh, that's coming up later.
2: But first, Michael, you've been writing about a rare gene variant that appears to be linked to longer life. So uh, let's just start with the biggest question. Could this discovery help those of us who aren't lucky enough to have this variant?
4: Yes, actually, it, it might well do so. So there's obviously a lot of interest in developing drugs that extend lifespans. and What these findings tell us is that if we can find a small molecule that mimics the effect of this gene variant, it should help us live longer. In fact, the team leader, Vera Gorbanova at the University of Rochester in New York, uh, she told me that her work suggests such drugs could even rejuvenate us to some extent.
3: Yay! Bring it on. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I mean, let's hope they're right. But um, how did they discover it?
4: So uh, they set out to look at a specific gene. So we know that the cells of all mammals produce this enzyme called SIRT6, that's S-I-R-T-6, that affects ageing. And if you delete the gene for this enzyme in mice that age faster, and if you make them produce more of this enzyme, they live longer. So this team were wondering if there are any variants of this in humans that affect aging. And so they looked in 500 people who have lived to be 100 or older, and they found this variant was twice as common in those centenarians.
2: So with these kinds of numbers, it doesn't sound like super strong evidence.
4: No, it's actually not even statistically significant. The trouble with looking for gene variants and centenarians is that there's so few of them. But what the team then did is they looked at a much bigger database of 150,000 people. They also found an association that still wasn't very strong. But then what they did that a lot of other teams looking for variants haven't done, they've then carried out a whole series of additional experiments they genetically engineered this variant into human cells and and looked at exactly what it was doing at a a very fundamental level
2: cells in a dish right not people (laughs) yeah
3: well that that's coming up in a few years time penny (laughs) 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 engineer they'll be on the iss and you'll be volunteering right (laughs) well you know maybe actually Uh, so what did they find with these extra experiments
4: so, SIRT6 counters aging in several different ways. For instance, it boosts DNA repair activities, which means that cells accumulate fewer mutations over time. And what these experiments showed is that the variant of SIRT6 basically boosts all of these anti-aging activities. And so, if you put these findings sort of in, in human cells in a dish together with all the sort of genetic evidence uh, from the centenarians, it makes a case that this variant boosts aging pretty strong.
3: It's starting to sound a little bit too good to be true. Uh, How how does a single protein have all these different anti-aging effects on something that's so complex?
4: Yeah, that's what I was wondering about as well. But this is basically a control protein. It's a regulatory protein that's telling a whole bunch of other proteins what to do. And you could think of this variant as being even bossier, if you like. It's saying, do more of this, work even (laughs) harder. (laughs)
2: so i mean how new is this because haven't we found other genetic variants before that are are also linked to a longer life
4: yes we have found a few but but they are hard to find because there are so few centenarians as i said earlier and also most of the variants that we've found that affect aging are doing so by a Influencing diseases associated with ageing rather than the ageing process. Hmm. So Gorbanova was saying that, you know, some of the the previous findings have actually been rather disappointing because they haven't told us much about the fundamental process of of ageing. And she thinks this is the first variant we've found that's really getting to the heart of what causes ageing and how we can influence that. And there's this buzz phrase, isn't there, among
3: longevity researchers called escape velocity, which is uh, what they say was when life expectancy starts to increase by more than a year per year. In other words, you rejuvenate at a quicker rate than you age. And, you know, I've heard Silicon Valley types talking about this because they, they they like to think it will allow them to escape death and defeat death, as they put it. So do you think, Michael, that is sort of Silicon Valley pie in the sky stuff? Or is this sort of stuff starting to suggest that we might one day get there?
4: (laughs) I I think Silicon Valley types think tech can just solve everything. And and obviously it can't. But it's definitely possible to slow aging and to reverse some aspects of it for a while. But I think when biologists talk about rejuvenation, they, they only mean that as in reversing some aspects, not in reversing all parts of it benjamin button they don't mean like (laughs) turning back into an 18 year old exactly i don't think it's going to be possible to stop aging as a whole at least not without some really extensive genetic modifications that sort of change some fundamental aspects of cell biology and we're not even close to being able to do that yet and of course if we did that would we would we still even be human
3: Okay, a few years ago when gravitational waves were discovered, so those are the massive ripples in space-time caused by the motion of massive objects. It was said then that this was the start of the era of gravitational wave astronomy, which is a
1: really cool thing. And Leia, we've got an update on that now, haven't we? So uh, what's going on? Yeah, so we've spotted a lot of gravitational waves now, and we know that they're constantly rippling through the entire universe. So the big news is something new that we might be able to find using gravitational waves called a gravitational glint. This is expected to happen when gravitational waves pass over another massive object as they're propagating through space. And then that object slows down part of the wave and that part will arrive to our detectors a little bit after the main wave. huh And in theory, we could use that echo to learn about the object that slowed down the wave. (laughs) Okay, so tell me if this is a helpful analogy or not at all helpful. But the way
3: (laughs) I I was thinking of it is that say you're in a swimming pool, uh, nice, just like relaxing in a swimming pool and an elephant jumps in a bit further up. (laughs) But there's like, you know, there's a rubber duck between you and the elephant, which slightly slows down the splash of the elephant as it comes towards you. Is that what you're talking about here with a glint?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Close enough. It's not precisely <laughs> correct, but oh, okay. but oh, go for yeah, close and, enough is good. Yeah, yeah. We and then we use those waves to be like, hey, we already knew about the elephant, but we think there's something else in the pool, and we think it's probably a rubber ducky. Uh huh. And in theory, we could learn more about it. So we haven't seen any of these glints yet, have we? Um,
3: but the idea is, if we can find them, you can find these things that you might not have been able to see you know, like neutron stars or even dark matter, the, the really weird stuff that no one's ever seen that makes up, you know, 85% of the universe.
1: Yeah. So even things that don't emit any light can't hide from gravity. So the hope is that we'd be able to find them and learn about them from how they slow down gravitational waves.
3: Okay. And that's what it is. It's just a hope that we're able to do this at the moment. We're just going to sort of sit and wait or, or do we need to go and build something?
1: Yeah. So the the researchers predicted that at the current detector sensitivities for the gravitational wave detectors we have now, we should be able to find one about every three years. So theoretically, we could dig through the data we already have, right. and we would hope to find one gravitational glint. So what what's your hunch? Do you think we're going to find glints? And and if we do, do you think they're going to help with dark matter? I hope we find them just because I think it's a really cool concept. Mm. Um I don't know if this particular method is going to help find dark matter because it could be really hard to dig out glints from the data, let alone analyze what those glints mean. But I do think that gravitational waves will help with figuring out what dark matter is eventually, just because they're one of the most versatile tools that we have for observing the universe.
3: Yeah, and we are in the new era of gravitational wave astronomy, as I (laughs) keep going on about Look, while we've got you, Leia, so last week there was this big excitement when astronomers detected this weird pulsing object 4,000 light years away. And you wrote about it for us. And there's a line that really made me laugh. There is an astronomer that you spoke to called Natasha Hurley Walker, who said, I was concerned that it was aliens, but it's across a very wide range of frequencies, and it means it must be a natural process. This is not an artificial signal. So what is it, Leia? It's not aliens. No.
1: <laughs> as Dr. Hurley Walker said, it is not aliens. Oh, it's never aliens. It's never aliens. It's never aliens as far as we know, not yet. Yeah. But usually whenever anything is pulsing like this object is, we think that means it's spinning. And some right. other measurements hinted that it probably has a really strong magnetic field. So the main thing we know in the universe that spins really fast and has a super powerful magnetic field is a type of neutron star called a magnetar. Mm-hmm. So it's probably just a, a weird magnetar. Well, that's still it's still a really cool thing to see, especially 4,000 light years away. Yeah, we've spotted so many things now that to me it's a marvel every time we see something new. Let's take a break to
3: tell you about our sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant has an extensive library of interactive courses exploring things like the weirdness of quantum objects, the physics of harvesting solar energy, and there are even courses that apparently make you an expert in algebra. If you fancy getting clued up on all things gravity after our chat about gravitational waves, check out Brilliant's course on gravitational physics. It goes into everything from orbital dynamics to ocean tides and even considers what would happen if the Earth was flat.
2: We're also going to be talking later about genetically modified fruit flies. In Brilliant's computational biology course, you can find out all about genes, DNA and how they both link to evolution, one of my favourite subjects. Whether you're a beginner or advanced, Brilliant is a fun way to learn real problem solving by doing it yourself. You can get started learning on Brilliant today for free and the first 200 listeners to sign up using our special link will get 20% off unlimited access to all the courses on Brilliant for a whole year. That link is brilliant.org newscientist We'll pop a link to that in our show notes.
3: And also I was in Norway a couple of weeks ago on a New Scientist discovery tour. If you're planning your next trip... New Scientist Discovery offers amazing science-inspired tours across the globe with experts on board and in the company of fellow travellers who enjoy the discovery of science. Go to newscientist.com discovery to find out more.
2: Right, we're back. And let's have a roundup of the climate crisis, shall we?
0: (laughs) Yes, uh,
3: let's do that. Uh, So look, I was in the park earlier this week and a peacock butterfly landed on Mm. my leg. Yeah. Now, I know it's not that much of an amazing story to tell, but, you know, it's winter. It was February the 1st and here's a butterfly.
2: Mm, um, that's quite jarring. So Peacock hibernate, right? You, you taught me that.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was definitely, you know, you could tell it's obviously one is first of February. It's come out of hibernation. It seems a bit early. Mm. Um, I mentioned that because, you know, there's this paper out this week showing that we've had a big shift in flowering plants in the timing of flowering uh, in the year.
2: Yeah, that was a study this week showing that in the UK, spring flowers are opening nearly a month earlier than they did before the mid-1980s, and that's due, of course, to climate change.
3: Yeah, and that's a really robust study. It's not, like, you know, it's not like me just saying a butterfly landed on my leg, oh, there's global warming going on. This is hundreds of thousands of observations of the first flowering date of 406 plants. It's a UK citizen science project called Nature's Calendar. And that's been combined with records dating back to 1753.
2: Yeah, and the conclusion is that plants are opening their flowers 26 days earlier on average in the years after 1986 than they did before. And small plants are doing this even earlier, flowering an average of 32 days earlier in the years after 1986 than they had done historically.
3: So basically spring is starting a month earlier than in the 80s. um, Mm. And the average maximum temperature across those four months uh, rose by 1.1 degrees C, comparing the period in 1950 to 86 with the years after 1986.
2: So this is yet another example of the ecological effects of climate change. You can imagine the knock-on effects that this could have on the rest of the ecosystem. Like You dread to think what would happen if pollinators can't sync up with the flowers and, and the effects that could have, right?
3: Exactly. That's the, that's the really worrying thing and the really big impact that this could have, the knock-on mm. effects. Yeah. And, you know, this is just one degree of warming that we're seeing this. So, you know, this is a massive change happening in our lifetimes, in our mm. literally in our back gardens in the UK here. And in related news, there's a paper now this week showing that marine heat waves have gone from very rare occurrences to common ones. And like you say about ecological effects... Uh, marine heatwaves also, you know, have these massive knock-on effects, causing algal blooms, coral bleaching, you know, mass die-offs of fish and and the birds that feed on them.
2: Yeah, sadly, marine heatwaves are, are now the new normal. And although this study was not even about coral in particular, there was also another study this week showing that cooler regions of the sea that can act as safe havens for coral reefs by protecting them from warmer temperatures. These cooler regions will be lost if we get to two degrees of warming, which we are, of course, on track for. And also, on top of that, all corals will suffer extreme bleaching events once we're at 1.5 degrees.
3: Yeah, so just to say bleaching of coral, that's when coral expels the algae, that normally live in them and provide them with the nutrients and the corals look bleached after that because the the algae are very colorful photosynthetic algae um, and they get bleached out they get chucked out and then that means the bleached corals are more likely to die
2: yeah, and of course, when we're talking about coral, you can't help but think of, of the amazing Great Barrier Reef. And temperatures there in December were the highest on record, which really doesn't actually bode well for February and March, which is usually the peak time of heat stress over that you know hugely significant reef. Yeah. Um, one sort of glimmer of hope for this year is that we're actually in a La Niña year, uh, which generally means you know it's cooler, there's more clouds and rain, so so hopefully it won't be quite as disastrous as it could be.
3: Yeah, and we'll be keeping an eye on all this, of course. One other sort of glimmer of hope is that some corals survive after bleaching within a reef, and there are quite a lot of efforts going on to breed bleach-resistant corals.
2: Now, staying sort of with climate change, but coming at it from a different angle, Chris Jackson is Professor of Sustainable Geoscience at the University of Manchester, and he's one of the star speakers at the upcoming New Scientist Live event in Manchester and online in March. You might have seen him on the BBC descending into active volcanoes, and Roman <laughs> spoke with him earlier this week.
3: Chris, thanks for joining us. Now, I want to start with an admission of something stupid I said in the past when I was uh, <laughs> the news editor, which was... I was only interested in a rock if there's a dinosaur in it. Uh, so <laughs> we can't please, be friends. <laughs> but please explain to me why that was uh, such a dumb thing to say.
5: Well, because rocks tell us so much more about the history of our planet and our place within it. So, so rocks are almost time capsules of you know past climate. They're time capsules of past life. They contextualize and what we're living through now as a species in terms of our interactions with the earth what could happen in the future so without rocks we would lack that context, that bigger picture of, uh, of ourselves and our role in, in on the planet and in the universe in general. So it is important that there are dinosaurs inside rocks because those, dinosaur fo- those fossils are a record of life on Earth. So they're a record of how life has dealt with a changing climate. So, yeah, it is important, but it's not the only thing we care about.
3: <laughs> OK, I stand totally corrected. <laughs> Now, you're a professor of sustainable geoscience at the University of Manchester. Tell us about that. What is sustainable geoscience?
5: So if we break it down into two parts, sustainability is a word which is becoming increasingly popular, at least well known. And that's how we would live in a kind of more sustainable way with the earth, how we would use the earth for resources for ourselves and how our activities are potentially negatively impacting natural systems. So that's the sustainability part. The geoscience part is how we use our scientific understanding to uh, probe the structure and evolution of the Earth. So that's just how we do geology. Now, sustainable geosciences, so putting those two together is, how do we deploy that science to help us live sustainably on the planet? That obviously spans things all the way from resource provision, so energy production, where are we gonna get energy from, electricity? How do we find water? things like that that keep us alive and improve our quality of life and allow us to have the technology we're using uh, for this call. All the way through to hazards, so geohazards, volcanoes, we've seen the recent eruption, the the Tongan eruption, earthquakes. So how do we use scientific knowledge to mitigate those geohazards and to protect people and their property? So it's just deploying geoscience, if you will, for a really, really important broad set of, of
3: good reasons. So that kind of leads on to something I was wondering about. What do you make about the arguments for mining the deep sea for nodules of metals there? you know, The argument that mining on the surface has been so destructive and damaging to the environment that we should go down to the deep sea and get all the metals we need <laughs> for transition to net zero from, from there.
5: Maybe from my giggling you can, you can get what I think of that. I mean, it's like everything, right? If you have good governance and you have good actors there is no reason why conceptually, a lot of these things can't actually work and be deployed for the benefit of, of many and be done in a way which is sustainable without so localizing the negative impacts on those communities. I don't know if if we have the ability to do that, or at least our track record in terms of research extraction in the past has been problematic enough to suggest that if we go and do it at the bottom of the ocean or on another planet, as has been discussed, why those problems won't arise again. So. I think until we fix ourselves, I think technologically and, and geologically, we, we could probably make these things work and, and economically even. But but in terms of how the governance would work, I guess I just don't have enough faith that we, we are really in a position to, to go and do that. Because I just think, you know, that the ecological damage, the environmental damage in the case of deep sea mining wouldn't be at the forefront of people's thinking when those things are, are taking off, despite the fact we have a really good set of case studies from the past where we've done you know, irrecoverable damage to certain environments through above-ocean uh, mining activities. So um, maybe in 100 years, if we have that question being asked to me, I'll have a different response when I have a bit more faith in humanity.
3: Um, you'll be speaking at New Scientist Live in Manchester. Can you give us a sneak preview of what you'll be talking about there?
5: Yeah, at New Scientist Live in Manchester this year, I'm going to be talking about the geological record of climate change so i'm going to be looking at how we know from looking at the rock and fossil record how the earth's climate has changed over 4.5 4.6 billion years give or take a give or take a week or so because i think that geological record is really important for not only just you know telling people why geology is really important but also for again contextualizing what we're living through now in terms of climate change so is it anomalous what we're living through or is it not? What might happen in the future? What happened in the past? Part of that geological record is obviously the paleontological record, the fossil record, which tells us about the way in which life responded to those changing climatic conditions, so the habitability of the earth. And so it's an amazing tool to be able to look back and and get a, a kind of set of guidelines as to you know what happens to the Earth when the climate changes, and what happens to life on Earth, and that's what I'm very excited to talk to the audience about at New Scientist Live uh, later this year.
3: You recently published a paper on racial diversity in geosciences. So, what was the finding?
5: Well, the finding in that paper was, as you might expect, that we are a very undiverse discipline in geosciences. Yeah, very, very white discipline. The paper sort of put some numbers to that based on looking at the UK um, higher education system. The reason we're concerned about that is purely from a social justice point of view, of course, but also there's a deeper issue here that if we wish for geosciences to be applied for the sustainable future we all wish for, we need to make sure that as broad a range of people are engaged in that research and engaged in that science, we need to make sure that we're communicating that science to a very broad range of people who are very different cultural backgrounds to ourselves or different relationships with the earth even right and our science no matter how cool and clever and awesome we think it is it will be limited by our ability to communicate that and influence people who are not like ourselves and so I think going hand in hand with doing the best science we can which is you know the technology the techniques it's actually about the social side of things as well the sociological side I, think that's a, I just think that's, a, that's something which we should be teaching scientists on a daily basis. And we've seen this with COVID, of course, in recent years, that a lot of the barriers to progress are, are sociological ones and political ones and not simply scientific ones.
2: That was Chris Jackson there, and you can see him for yourself, either online or in person at New Scientist Live in March. To find out more and buy tickets, go to newscientist.com slash live. Now, here's a question. If you had a clone and your clone and yourself grew up in exactly the same environment, would you expect that you'd both behave the same way?
3: <laughs> mm. um, could we get exactly the same environment? That's
2: wow, the question. yeah, that's the question, yeah. isn't it? Uh, yeah. So I
3: have to say no, because, you know, identical twins, they're genetically almost identical, aren't they? Um, and mm. they grow up in pretty much the same environment, but they're not the same. They're not turning into the, exactly the same with the same behaviours or personalities, do they?
2: Yeah, exactly. I've always found that really interesting. You mm. know, people who do have very similar genes and uh, are very similar uh, environments, they can still be really different people. And, and what what is that about? But now an experiment involving fruit flies has shown that this is a question that applies even to really simple little animals too.
3: Yeah. So tell us about this. Um, And obviously it's going to be about genetics, isn't it? If it's about fruit flies.
2: Yeah, exactly. The the classic model organism for for looking at genetics. So this is an experiment that used Drosophila fruit flies um, that have been genetically modified to be nearly genetically identical, really close. And on top of that, the flies were housed together. They were fed the same diet. And then when they were a week old as flies, they would then set a learning task.
3: Uh, when you say they're fed the same diet, I'm just getting that already like a memory of the smell of agar or that, you know, the smell of that mixture that you feed fruit flies to. Uh,
2: oh. I always used to say it was um, that yeasty apple cakey stuff. But in oh. this experiment, it was corn flour.
3: <laughs> oh, yummy.
2: Yum. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: so what were they teaching these these classes of flies?
2: So they taught the flies to associate a particular odour with bad things, so either an electric shock or a bitter taste. Um, So these are kind of negative stimuli that the flies don't like and want to learn to avoid. And they then switched the odours and and the bad things around to see how quickly the, the flies could learn the new lessons. And what's interesting is that even after just the first training session, the flies exhibited a variety of different responses. And then throughout the experiment, these differences actually remain constant. So, for example, a fly that quickly learned to avoid a shock also quickly learned to avoid the bitter taste. And this builds on other studies that have found near identical flies showing individual preferences for things like light, temperature or particular postures.
3: Wow. Okay. So what, how are they explaining this then if you know, these flies have the same genes and the same environment?
2: Yeah, so it's such a, an interesting question. Mm. One of the researchers told our writer that they're finding pushes against the idea that nature and nurture are solely responsible for the variation between organisms. And that's kind of a deeply philosophical issue, yeah. isn't it, really? I
3: mean, if they're not responsible, what is?
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? So it's really hard to know what's at play here. So it could be due to maybe random differences in how each fly's brain develops It could even be due to like atomic level thermal fluctuations and how they affect neural circuits in their brains, but that's, basically impossible to measure it's really hard to know
3: quantum effects
2: yeah yeah exactly. i mean it's going
3: to be tough. someone's going to invoke quantum effects surely
2: say, <laughs> why not alternatively maybe really tiny differences in, in environment and experience have a big effect it's like you say you know identical twins still have some differences in their environment so for example maybe if a fly spends more time on one side of its tube or nearer the food or slightly further away from light maybe that could have some kind of difference yeah
3: yeah but it is amazing, isn't it, that these tiny differences can
4: fan out into mm. bigger differences and change how we behave?
2: Yeah, it, it feels almost chaotic.
4: I did yeah. a story a, a while ago where uh, researchers found that there were these random differences in sort of epigenetic in, inheritances. And, and they, they were speculating that this is actually a way of nature hedging its bet, that it's, this isn't just a failure to give it all your offspring the same, exactly the same sort of epigenetic regulation but by making it deliberately making it difference so you give them a better chance of surviving that like you, you don't want genetically identical animals to mm. all behave in exactly the same way you, you want some randomness.
2: Mm, very clever I'm, I what really appeals to me here is that we don't know exactly what is shaping personality in animals and even in these really tiny simple animals random differences like you mentioned they could have a profound effect that perhaps we'll struggle to ever really even understand.
3: That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed our show, please tell all your friends about it and subscribe.
2: Yes, and remember that 20% subscription discount you can get at newscientist.com slash pod20. Thanks to our guests this week, reporters Leah Crane and Michael LePage, and to star geologist Chris Jackson. We're back next week. We'll see you then. Bye.
4: Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus.